Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Matterhorn. Um, I've been gone a couple of weeks while I'm working on the new iteration of this project, and I'm launching it with an introduction today to get you guys oriented, let you know a little bit more what it's about and what to expect. Um, And you can also, if you're on um, my Substack page, The Matterhorn, you can leave some comments about what you think or what you'd like to see. Um, I'd really love to hear where you want this project to go. So if you're over there, you've heard a little bit about this already. Um, And what I'm going to be doing is sharing a weekly podcast, um, also in a transcript and multimedia form on Substack. That's about how to layer fiction Um, And, you know, it's for fiction writers, it's for other kinds of people who create fictions. I mean, even a painting can be a kind of a fiction, so creators. And also curious minds, people who kind of think about um, the arts especially and how different layers go into creating that fiction. So whichever angle you're coming to it from, Um, hopefully you'll find some kind of interesting ideas and also some texts. I'm going to be sharing a lot of different framing texts and literary texts, um, and different parts of the arts, um, as well as my work with you each week. Um, and you can add to that dialogue in all of those, all of those comments. So those are going to come out every Tuesday, um, and which is a change from my Thursday posts for podcasts um, in the last season. Um, and then on Saturdays, I'm going to share a section of my serialized fiction, A Hong Kong Story, um, which hasn't been published before. So this is brand new. So this project is really an extension of what I was doing before, which was um It was called The Intersections of Literature and Arts, and I was bringing together a lot of texts under different realms like um, fashion, jazz. Um, Sometimes I was looking at a particular author like Paul Oster over several weeks. Um, I did a summer travel series where I really wanted to place a bit more and then connected texts to those places. Um, I also had interviews with different kinds of writers and creators out there. Um, So it's an extension of those things in the sense that um, when I write fiction, all of those layers influence the the fiction that I write. And I find that that's the place I can really be most free with the ideas I've been thinking about or reading about or experiencing or seeing in a film. Um, And I get inspired by those ideas and to make my own kind of philosophical response, um, I put it in in fiction. So, you know, I'm working on a couple of other projects of fiction in the background. 
and I thought this one was more ready to to share with you and could really be used as a catalyst for these ideas um, because not only does this novel a Hong Kong story um, play with a lot of the things I've been looking at different kinds of critical theory different filmmakers even um, allusions ideas about culture of the everyday spatial theory which is really um, big for me something I've researched a lot um, but it's also it's also about Hong Kong and so Hong Kong as as a place um, Hong Kong as a culture Hong Kong in terms of its history and its politics um, and this is something I've I've also researched a lot about and I, I lived in Hong Kong for eight years so I'm a permanent resident there I have you know, a lot of friends who are still there. And I just think it's it's such an amazing place that's kind of worthy of digging a bit deeper into. Um, and partly for that reason, every week I'll also share um, a places and spaces section in the podcast. But I'll come back to that um, in a minute and explain that a little bit more in depth for you guys today. Okay, so those of you who don't know me already... Um, my name is Dr. Kathleen Waller. This is what I go by professionally. You can also call me Kate in the comments. Um, you know, once we get, um, we start communicating together, that would be great. Um, so I was a teacher in high schools and university for 20 years, teaching English, epistemology, um, film, critical theory, um, for a long time and I was I was also writing curriculum and writing um, a couple of books for teachers as well so thinking about these ideas um, in the classroom to to help students both learn about literature and the arts as well as how to be writers so I've been thinking about a lot of these ideas for a long time um, I'm always trying to learn more by talking to a lot of you who are listening, by reading more, by just discovering more. Um, I just love growing in that way. So um, I, I also studied comparative literature, which is, you can think of it also as cultural studies through the arts. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, I did a PhD there as well as an MA before that. And and so during that time is when I additionally began to write fiction more seriously. Um, I published my first novel um, and a lot of the ideas came from what I was researching as well. But I'm, I'm very interested in culture and the way that it changes, what it has to do with identity, what it has to do with place. And I think you'll see this is this is in my fiction, but it's also something I want to talk about more generally in other people's work and in ways that you can use it um, yourselves. I'm really interested in looking at ideas from an interdisciplinary perspective. Um, so I even I already have uh, in a couple of weeks a podcast that's going to be on using physics um, in your writing. Um, but I, I've I've always worked from an interdisciplinary viewpoint. Um, and I love that that's very freeing. You know, I think there's still a r really important need for people who are specializing in a more narrow area so that that research and those ideas can go deeper. Um, 
but this is just the way that I work, kind of bringing these things together um, like a puzzle and then forming my own idea from that. Um, I spoke earlier this year in Jan- at the end of January with Pratt Institute in um, in Brooklyn to university students and some teachers and professors um, about the way that I specifically use theory in my fiction writing or how it influenced my fiction writing. And I end up talking about a lot of these other layers as well. So I've just included that uh, YouTube of my of my lecture um, and some of the texts and quotes from that on the Substack post related to this podcast. So if you want to check it out, you know, it's there at any time. Um, and I'd, I'll just add, you know, at the start here that this, the podcasts that I'll be doing, they're not, it's not about analyzing my work uh, that I present to you. You know, if you want to analyze it, that's fine with me. But it's more about using it as kind of a springboard for the ideas. So just kind of talking about what it is that was layered into that chapter that I find interesting and where I see it elsewhere and how we can maybe use it and what's the purpose of using it. So it should be kind of fun to think about things that way um, and also possibly useful if you are one of those creators. So let's just go back to this um, subtitle for the season. So the truth in fiction, it comes from Uh, Virginia Woolf and Jacques Derrida, a mixture of that. So let's just go to Virginia Woolf first. I mean, I I love her writing. I think she's so experimental and philosophical. And I think she really does this where she's she's making fiction that that is trying to tell us something more philosophical. I mean, maybe all fiction writers are to some extent. Right. But I think she does it to um, a really strong degree. And in her very famous essay, A Room of One's Own, um, which was a lecture first, she talks about making that lecture into a fiction so that she's more free to say what she wants to say. And this has a lot to do with with my work. So I'll just read a couple of quotes from that from that essay to help us get oriented in this idea. So first she says, I should never be able to fulfill what is. I understand the first duty of a lecturer to hand you after an hour's discourse a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. So this this nugget of truth, something you can kind of hold in your hand and just take with you, you know, she just thinks that's like a little bit ridiculous. You really need to Play with the ideas more in your own mind. Um, There's going to be ambiguity in the ideas that you come up with and trying to be comfortable with that ambiguity, trying to help us question the world around us rather than have like this statement we can just take with us and use over and over again as a fact. And then she also says fiction is likely to contain more truth than fact. And I, th- I think, you know, this is something that I've found really interesting with students to debate, you know, is does fiction have more truth than you could say nonfiction or you could say fact, you know, and um, sometimes I think with fiction and I'll talk about this with film um, in two weeks time when I'm looking at Fruit Chen and quasi realism, the way that we really can sometimes go deeper if we're looking at um uh, a person that we're studying, whether it's a narrator or another character, 
you know, we can go really deep into their private lives, whereas like a documentary, for example, or a biography might not be able to go as deeply. Sometimes it can, of course, um, but in fiction, we can we can just play with the ideas a bit more. At least that's the way I see it. And that's the way Virginia Woolf presents it here. And then Jacques Derrida, who um, if you've been reading my work, you'll know that I, I really like this French philosopher, um, and I will just say, if you've if you've encountered his work and just felt confused by it, um, you know it's fine if you don't want to read it again. But I'd recommend giving it another go, just kind of slowing down with it. And I've also found that I mean, I do um, read in French, and I think he just makes so much more sense in French. So if you even speak sort of decent French, maybe look at the French as well as the English, because what he's doing in his writing is also playing with the language as he writes. And so it's really hard to get um, not just an accurate translation, but a translation that really just flows, I think, in the way that he meant it to. And you'll find in a lot of English translations, at least of his work, that you'll often see bracketed French words because the translator feels that the that French word is necessary to understand the translation. So maybe that puts you off even more, and that's okay. But I'm just explaining how, for me, uh, Derrida is just a, an amazing thinker, and I'm always going back to his work. And I'm also often getting confused um, in his works, and that allows me to kind of um, start thinking more more deeply. So if I feel disoriented then I kind of want to get to to some results as well. And I just um, ponder these ideas. Maybe it's like while I'm on a couch reading it. Maybe it's later when I'm on a run. Um, but it just kind of stays with me more. So this book, The Truth in Painting, um, is a really beautiful book. I mean, he's looking at visual art in the book, but he's speaking more philosophically as he usually does. Um, the title comes from something that Paul Cezanne wrote in a note to the French artist Emile Bernard in 1905. He said, I owe you the truth in painting and I will tell it to you. Um, and it, it remains vague. Um, it's It wasn't too long before Cezanne died. And so we don't know definitely what he meant there. Um, Part of this is what Derrida is pondering in the book and what that means to him. So as you might um, consider in terms of painting, Derrida is is looking also at framing and he, he looks at the paragon, um, which comes from Greek philosophy as well as Immanuel Kant. So I'll be looking at that in terms of frames and openings next week and how we can frame our work. Um, but he, he really looks at um, the way truth shifts as we understand simulacra and metaphor differently, the truth in the act of painting itself. Um, and I really see truth as something that's quite nuanced and malleable, but paradoxically, I think we can place truth on a pedestal, maybe even because it's more malleable. Um, I don't think we should simply accept knowledge as it is, and this is something that Derrida is getting at, and we should investigate both if it's true and what it means to us more personally. So the title of this season comes from those two authors, again, Wolf and Derrida. Um, 
but we'll we'll be looking at and we're not going to be always coming back to those thinkers philosophers writers we're going to be looking at other literature. We're going to be looking at um, other texts of different variety. I mean, text can be um, many things. Text can be, I think you can read the city as a text. Um, and I'll come back to that in places and spaces. But, you know, recently on the Matterhorn, we looked at fashion as a text. Um, you can look at um, billboards as texts. You can look at not just different kinds of writing, but also different art forms like songs, for example. So I'm really looking at, at it in a more holistic way. Um, but if we just consider other literary fiction that maybe does this, that you might be familiar with, uh, consider Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore. I'll be referring to this sometimes. I think it's just such an amazing book. I mean, a lot of Murakami's books are wonderful. And I think all fictions have these layers. But if you look at Kafka on the Shore, I mean, it's it's retelling a Greek tragedy um, or it's using it as allegory. Um, of course, Kafka, Franz Kafka, the Czech writer who was writing in German um, from the Jewish quarter in Prague. You know, there's so many layers there already. He's looking at other... Um, Western writers, he's also looking, Murakami's also looking at symbols of culture, of pop culture in both the East and the West, mostly Japan and America, but elsewhere as well. He's looking at history layers of World War II. Um, he's kind of jumping between times through this kind of parallel universe. Um, so he's using physics as well. Um, some of it hypothetical, but some of it grounded more in, in research too. And he's using a lot of music. He's using Beethoven. He's using the Beatles. Um, he uses jazz. Murakami once owned a jazz cafe. So he's using all these layers. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that we're going to be both kind of looking at for fun and just seeing where it comes from and also thinking, Hey, how can, how can you use this? Um, just a few others I'll mention more briefly. There's, and I mentioned others in the in the lecture I told you about that I'm going to link in. So there's The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Um, of course, it's using history in America in terms of um, racism and laws around race, but it's also using a school primer as its premise. And so kind of what is the text that young children first see and what does it tell them about like what's normal and who is normal and how does that get inverted? Um, it's just, it's such a beautiful book, The Bluest Eye. Um, there's The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, um, a more contemporary book just from a year or two ago. And she's got this tale that takes place mostly in this bookshop in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. There are layers of um, Black Lives Matters. It's from not too far from where George Floyd was killed. Um, and also about the Native American population um, and indigenous identities. So she's playing with a lot of different ideas and, of course, lots of books because it's in a bookshop and she has this sort of fictional recommended reading list from the character within the book um, at the end, which I'm still working my way through, but it's it's a really incredible list. Um, there's The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, which I guess you could say is YA fiction, but it's really, I think adults would love it as well. She uses um, all sorts of music from Taylor Swift to Tupac Shakur. Um, she's um, using code switching all the time and really alluding implicitly to James Baldwin. 
um, she's got some just some incredible narrative devices she uses there. Um, City of Glass by Paul Oster. I did a whole month series on Paul Oster. You guys can check out. But City of Glass, it's using um, Tower of Babel, both the both the story of the Tower of Babel and the painting. He's using the detective genre. Um, he's using his own name within the fiction and kind of playing with these questions of identity and authorship. So there's just a ton going on in in all of his novels, but this is a shorter one that you could always start with. So I'll I'll kind of leave it as that at that in terms of examples now, but um, I'll come back to uh, the spaces and places. So in each episode, when I jump to the spaces and places section, um, which sometimes will have more to do with the overall topic than other times, um, you'll hear this. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. So in each in each episode, I'm going to have um, this place and space section and of the project where I focus on something. It might be a, an apartment space. It might be a section of Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is really uh, unique because it's it's so urban, so densely urban. Um, and then at the same time, um, you have beaches and nature trails and jungle all around the city and you have all these islands um, you have different methods of transport whether it's the minibuses and the and the underground train or the ferries that can get you everywhere so it's a really um, unique place and I'm interested in what place um, has to do with culture as I've said I'm interested in that city as text so I'll link in a couple of articles I've written to those those things um, in case they interest you now. Um, Something that I said in the city post is there's a language of cities. We can read the walls of a city, the bricks, street art, windows, they all tell stories. They tell us who was there and who was making claim. They tell us what is being kept in our in or kept out. We can read the signs. There are literal signposts as well as symbols of signification everywhere. People walking down the street each tell a story as well, both visibly and invisibly. So um, other times I've talked about this, or for example, in the a post on Japan, I talked about a cafe in Paris, um, I had a little summer travel series. Um, if we stick with the city for a moment, in relation to New York, I wrote the beauty of bombardment and of layers of histories of magical encounters with the everyday and with all kinds of cultures. These beauties wistfully fly around me in the autumn wind, whispering into my ear and awakening my soul. The soles of my shoes make a rhythm as I carve my way through, blending with the sounds of this urbanity. And then um, if we think of a place we associate more with nature and forests, um, Maine, um, at the beginning of my post on Maine, which is a place I lived for four years while I was at university, um, I write I write this. Maine lives in my mind like a vivid, swirling, parallel world I'm always inhabiting from elsewhere. Don't we as writers all have those imaginary intersections of places and times creating our current realities or those of our fictions? 
Maine is my elsewhere. I guess it's not my only one. Other former homes have also taken on this identity in my mind. The nature of a place and its culture move between each other to create its identity. As I inhabit them both, I too become a part of them. It's easier to take pieces of culture with me than nature. Photographs and memories instead remind me of this natural beauty, but so do words, those I've written and those of authors who take nature into their minds and allow it to flow out as language. I guess then it has already become cultural as well. I pose some questions related to this. I ask, what does place have to do with culture? Or what does nature have to do with creating a sense of place? Or further still, how does nature shape society? So next week, I'll get started by looking at the frame and openings as the first layer into the text. Um, And if you're not on my Substack yet, please check it out in the episode notes. Um, That's where you're going to get all the links to these texts and you can join our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me here and I'm excited to see where we go.